Hello, and welcome to another episode of Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski, and I am stoked for today's episode, <laughs> in case you couldn't tell. Uh, we're going to be talking today about Ra the Sun God and the anti-god Apep, or also known as Apophis, of Egyptian mythology. And I bet some of you are thinking to yourselves, everyone's done this. <laughs> everyone's done Egyptian mythology. Everyone keeps talking about Egyptian mythology. It never stops. This is why this is a different episode, though, because we're going to try to conflate previous ancient folklore and mythology to modern day scientific understanding. And we're going to do that by using these two gods or one god and anti-god to sort of do that. But before we get into that, I just want to remind you all, if you have any source material or any recommendations for topics, you can always email stuff to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also go to my Instagram, where you will find a link to my Patreon. Most of this will be in the show notes. And if you do decide to donate to Patreon or Venmo, uh, thank you very much, because that will help me to sort of get more time to do these so I can start doing this on a more weekly basis rather than a bi-weekly basis. That's sort of my goal right now is to get more uploads out quicker because, you know, I work that nine to five. You know what it's like. You know what it's like. It's a lot of time. It's time consuming. So I have to do bi-weekly. And also follows, reviews, downloads, and recommendations really help show growth. So if you do any of that stuff, thank you, thank you so much. And without further ado, let's get into it. So first we need to talk about the sun god or creator god Ra. So Ra has many names <laughs> due to the conflation of many local sun gods throughout all of Egypt. Uh, there's Amun-Ra, Atum-Ra, or Atum-Re, and at least I think that's how they're pronounced. Re might also be pronounced as Ra. I don't know. It's just different spelling. These names originated before the unification of Egyptian regions. And just remember, Ra is the sort of umbrella term. And it's kind of slightly like uh, Baal of uh, Canaan or Canaan. Amun-Ra became the chief god of Egypt when Upper and Lower Egypt united in 1570 BCE. So we need to talk about the creation of Ra from the waters of chaos he essentially collects himself or manifests out of Nun, or Nun, the god of the void or just the watery abyss or inactivity. Nun essentially, or Nun essentially equals none or nothing. So it's spelled N-U-N, and I might just pronounce it as none throughout this because that's literally the definition of it. So <laughs> Ra manifests, yet he is unsatisfied and suffers from isolation in this void while struggling to separate himself from the void as well as to sort of create his own physical form. So then he begins to create. And the first thing he really creates uh, is the Eye of Ra, or later Eye of Horus. And he does that by sort of creating a vessel for his physical form while the Eye itself sort of acts as the sun. And it stays in a sort of stationary position like the sun does. And then after that, he's still not satisfied, so he creates his two first children, Shu and Tefnut. And they sort of run away or get lost while Ra is just enjoying existence, I guess. Like, they just kind of 
disappear onto the world that Rock created. And after some time, I'm assuming thousands of years, he realizes his children are gone. He has no idea where they went. And he's like, uh, my babies, where did they go? So he ends up creating this goddess Sekhmet uh, to go find them. But uh, I'm trying to go in chronological order, so we're going to get to her in a second. Shu and Tefnut, while they get lost, have two children named Geb and Newt, or Geb and Nut. And these are the parents of Osiris, Set, and Isis, as well as Horus the Elder in some variations, and another goddess that I can't remember the name of and probably can't pronounce. But she doesn't have anything to do with this folklore, so we're just going to stick to Set, Osiris, and Isis. But before we talk about those problematic three, we have to talk about uh, Sekhmet and Bastet. So originally were sectarian lioness goddesses of the sun prior to the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt. Thought to have deconflated from one another, a rare thing to happen in religion. Things rarely deconflate, as you could tell from previous episodes. Things tend to join together when cultures sort of collide and assimilate with one another. So to have a deity deconflate into two deities during a merging of cultures throughout Egypt is just very interesting. So again, that's not definite. That's just a theory about the missing pieces of folklore that we can't really find in Egypt. And we'll get into a little bit of why we think these two were a deconflation of an original goddess. Sekhmet, in some variations, is said to be the third child of Ra, as I said before, uh, created as a warrior goddess from the Eye of Ra to find Shu and Tefnut. Bastet was a sun deity, but also later heavily associated with the moon, and later depicted with the head of a black cat rather than a lioness. Although, it is thought that she used to be more of a lioness figure. Sekhmet went on a killing spree that Bastet warned Ra about, and I forget if it's because uh, the things that Osiris set and Iris were getting up to were sort of making the climate of the human realm chaotic, uh, because mainly Set, he's a god of destruction, and this sets a bad example for the humans. I believe these are. this is what's going on that makes the humans sort of rise up against the gods, and this causes Sekhmet to be like, oh, hell no, they need to be put in their place, and Ra's like, okay, do it. And then a few years pass, and Bastet's like, did you tell her to kill all of them? And he's like, no. And she's like, well, she's killing all of them. And Ra's like, oh, oh, God, no, we need to get her hammered. We need to get her drunk. So Bastet and Ra uh, sort of coordinate and figure out a plan to get Sekhmet hammered by I forget how they do it but they essentially she's trying to like spill blood and they I don't know fill sacks of something that's filled with blood and she's like drinking the blood thinking it's blood and it's actually you know wine and then she gets hammered so Sekhmet gets drunk off wine and the humans are saved (laughs) for a little while And during this time, uh, leading up to this sort of, like, hush-hush, like, let's get Sekhmet drunk, uh, Sekhmet is thought to be jealous of Bastet because while Sekhmet was off finding Shu and Tefnut, Ra decided to make a new eye, which was Bastet, 
a sort of eye of Ra. So both Sekhmet and Bastet are warrior goddesses. And when Sekhmet comes back, pretty much telling Ra, they didn't want to come back. You created me for this nonsense without like really taking ownership of what you're doing. And now I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed. Then she comes home and finds that there's a new warrior goddess with a cat head. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? So she's pissed. And that's probably, you know, I think that sort of correlates to why she's so gung-ho about killing the humans is because she doesn't think they respect Ra. And she's angry. She's fucking pissed all the time. She's like, let me be of use. They all want to be of use to Ra. And when they're not, they're mad at Ra because he is favoring someone else or making them do something for him. And they're like, no, I want to do something. Make me useful. Don't just make me to have me sit here. So she gets mad. They get her drunk. And all is well for a little while. And just to sort of put into context uh, where most of this folklore is coming from, it's coming from the New Kingdom era. So the later era of Egypt when everything is unified. Some of this folklore, again, like I said, like Ra, there were certain sun gods in regions of Egypt that all sort of conflated into Ra. So this folklore does go back to the Old and Middle Kingdom. However, this like the way I'm telling it is very New Kingdom style. And the New Kingdom goes from about 1550 BCE to 1100 BCE, whereas the Old Kingdom sort of starts a little bit after 3000 BCE. And now we need to get into the clusterfuck that is the relationship between the brothers Set and Osiris, because they fucking hate each other. So <laughs> there's this banquet or something that uh, Ra... Ra wasn't there, but the other gods are sort of assembling, hanging out, and this happens while Ra is not present, but he is told, like, immediately after it happens to come back to the other gods. Uh, Set kills Osiris by putting him in a coffin and sending him to the sea. Uh, no one's really sure why, at least I'm not sure why this happens. They just get into an argument and again, Set is the god of destruction, so he's like, I don't like Osiris, what do I do best? Destroy, so he just kills Osiris. But Isis later found him in his coffin, and when she finds him, Set finds out and is furious, and then chops up his entire body like a serial killer, and once again, Osiris is dead. And I believe it's these course of events that cause the humans to get chaotic and then Sekhmet goes and kills a bunch of them and then she goes a little fucking overboard because she's just an angry person and then Ron Bestet get her drunk. I believe that's how these events unfold and I believe they're related, but I'm not entirely sure. It got a little muddy there. Just kidding. This is Vic three days into the future and the reason why... Set goes to war, sort of, with Osiris and kills him is mainly because, mainly, because Osiris is a god of order, an order of the world, whereas Set is destruction of the world. So Set can't stand him and kills him. Set is worshipped as a war hero in the early dynastic era, so right before and during the Old Kingdom era from 3000 BCE to 2000 BCE, but was later associated with the murder of Osiris in the New Kingdom era from 1500 to 1000 BCE. And Osiris himself 
also had a sort of different job, different persona prior to the New Kingdom era, before his quote-unquote death. Um, prior to that, he is thought to have been an agricultural god, but thanks to Set, he got promoted slash demoted and became the god of the underworld. Uh, Isis later put Osiris' body back together, but he was now missing a penis. So I guess that was the deciding factor that he would be the god of the underworld and reign there. I think this is just a personal stab in the dark of what I think of why this is. Uh, death is associated with infertility and, you know, the god of the underworld... I guess needed to be infertile so he didn't have a penis and that was like okay there you go you gotta go and take care of organizing dead people now that you lost your penis Okay, now that we know about Ra and his many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, now we get to talk about Apep slash Apophis. Apophis being the Greek word for Apep. So, I have my own little, like, sort of perspective on Apep and how he correlates to current scientific understanding because y you'll see, you'll see, it, it, it's... You'll see. So, first we have to talk about uh, Ra's battles with Apep. So, these myths were heavily elaborated on throughout the New Kingdom era, sort of like the last section I talked about. Uh, Ra traveled with Bastet and Sekhmet to the underworld to find Osiris after Osiris's death because they didn't want Osiris to die. They were like, what the hell, Set? That's kind of rude. Set was like... I don't give a fuck. And then Ra's like, you're punished. Become a mortal goat or snake or something. I He just makes him something. And then Set can't be a god for a little while. So they do that. And then they're like, let's go find Osiris in the underworld. So they depart from the Manjet, which is the day boat that Ra uses to bring light across the skies. And they board the... Mesectet, the night or underworld boat. And they do this by going to Newt, who is the goddess of the skies, and they ask her for passage into the underworld. And she's like, y'all gonna die. And they're like, yes, uh, we figured as much, but, you know, we'll try it. We're gods. We can do anything. And she's like, mm-hmm, good luck. And then they go into the underworld. When they go to find Osiris, they realize that he is now the god of the dead and the underworld, and he cannot really come back. And they find him in his mummified, penisless form. <laughs> and he's sort of like a zombie god now. Like, he's different. He's a different guy. But while they're there, Osiris is like, well, I'm not really the god of this realm. And the god, like, the sort of god of death or god of nothing. And... Ra's like, what does that mean? And he's like, there's this anti-god that you need to look out for specifically. And Ra's like, what is an anti-god? And he's like, his name is Apep. And if you try to kill him, he will kill you. And thus it begins. 
because of course Ra's like I'm gonna go kill it and he's like don't do it and he's like I'm gonna go kill it Bastet and Sekhmet are gonna join me my two warrior daughters we're gonna kill this thing and he's like don't do it and he goes to do it so he leaves and tries to find Apep variations of this myth say that Apep waited for Ra in the western mountain called Baku uh, B-A-K-H-U where the sun set and in others Apep lurks just before dawn at least that comes from this text called the 10th region of the night and of course in other variations he's already in the underworld or some pocket of the underworld just waiting for Ra and due to the wide range of Apep's possible locations that he gained throughout these myths um, he also gained the title of the World Encircler, which is weirdly similar to that of the Nordic Jormungandr, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is the World Encircler snake in Norse mythology. I think it's a son of Loki or a creation of Loki. I don't know. But the myth goes with the flick of his tail, Ragnarok begins, so... He's also associated with chaos and destruction, sort of like Apep is. And the most common version of Apep's lore is where he awaits Ra in the underworld, and each time Ra descends to battle him, each time he pays respects to Osiris before moving on to hunt Apep. Apep also received the title Evil Dragon of the Nile because he is associated with water, Sort of like Noon is, in the sense that Noon is nothing, but also is the chaotic ocean of nothing. So it's associated with water, and Apep sort of represents these sort of same things of chaos and darkness and lack of things. So he is also associated with water, and more specifically the Nile. And... Reasons why that might be also correlates to science. So this is where we're going to start to get into the sciencey part. The Nile, I guess, floods or the tide rises when Os the star alignment of Osiris is in view. So it's almost like the higher the tide goes, the closer you are to the underworld. Because again, the Egyptians didn't see the underworld as being underground. They saw it as being in the stars. That's where the underworld was which I don't, it's not under anything. Why do you call it the underworld? It should be called the overworld. That'd be even cooler. The overworld? Oh my God, bring me there. Also, it just makes even more sense because, you know, you go to the overworld when your life is over. I don't know why we're not calling it this. Anyway, now here's where we really get into the scientific part of it because Apep is also associated with uh, nighttime, obviously, and eclipses due to the lack of sunlight. So it's a time where Ra is absent or spending his energy fighting Apep. It is also scientifically associated with the asteroid Apophis, Lord of Chaos, which has a slight chance of crashing into us in 2029, and we narrowly missed it back in 2004. And apparently it's going to have catastrophic damage if it hits us, so we named it something extremely dramatic, you know, as we do well as human beings. And before we go forward, I just want to clarify that 
some of the science aspects to this are things that I've just picked up, like patterns I'm seeing. I don't know if anyone's correlated these two before, but I don't know. I just saw an interesting correlation between OPEP and black holes. And we're going to go into why. So OPEP's time over the mortal realm was at night, of course, or during an eclipse, which we know, you know, the scientific aspects of night and day now. But if you remember, OPEP is sort of similar or a more defined manifestation related to noon, which is the abyss, nothing, uh, chaos. And we know now at night, we are on the side of the earth that is facing away from the sun and towards space, open space, you know, noon, uh, which is also, again, sort of similar to Ophep's realm. And we'll kind of go into that a little bit. And of course, out in space, yes, there are other stars, but there are also massive black holes. And a lot of those black holes are currently consuming hundreds of stars right now. So keep that in mind. Because again, remember when Ra's like, I'm gonna go kill Apep. And Osiris is like, I literally just told you, you can't do that. And Ra's kind of like, I'm the creator god, I can't die. Uh, the sun that we know in scientific understanding, is a powerful sphere that if it crashed into Earth, Earth would just be like, boop, it would be gone. Of course, you know, the sun can't just crash into Earth, but you know what I mean. It's this massive, powerful hub of energy that is more powerful than anything around it currently in the solar system because it kind of helped create the solar system. It made all these things. It didn't make the mass. The mass came from other stars exploding and things colliding and you know, you know. But it pulled it all into its gravitational pull and is now the center of it all. It is the most powerful thing in the solar system. So for Ra to be like, yo, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go find Apep and kill him. That's like the sun saying to some god of underworld, I'm gonna go destroy a black hole. We all know that can't happen. We all know if a sun came near a black hole, the black hole would absorb it and just pull it in to nothing. So I totally get where Osiris is coming from when he's like, don't do that. Don't go find it because we all know what happens to stars that are near black holes. Also, we're not sure if things come out on the other end of black holes. There's this sort of uh, thing called spaghettification, which is where something that enters into a black hole, it starts to narrow and fit into this tight, tight, tiny place. I, I don't know where I got this information from. It's not on my list of references. But someone... I, th I believe said these holes could probably be about as big as Texas, which sounds big. But if you think about how big a sun is, you're like, an entire sun's just going to fit into a hole the size of Texas? Yeah, that's a tiny freaking spot. So anything that enters into a black hole just converges all on this one spot and it begins to start this process of spaghettification where it becomes stringy and just breaks down entirely into this tiny little hole. So we don't know because we've never seen the other side of a black hole. We've never seen a black hole where it's, you know, spitting things out. We don't know what happens on the other side. It could just totally destroy it, 
there was a previous theory where it, there was just this place where matter just collected into nothing, like destroyed matter just collected and just sat in the bottom of nothing. But that just sounds real hard to believe with how the universe works and the fact that black holes are just holes and nothing. You think there's just going to be a room where all the matter that's been destroyed sits? You think that's how that works? No, we don't know if it's entering another realm where things could reassemble because we don't know how these black holes work. We don't know if they're just a transit or if it's completely destroying everything. And the reason why I bring this up is because every single time in the folklore where Ra goes to fight Apep, he dies. Him, Bastet, Sekhmet, they all die. And he is later, you know, reborn in some way or alive. And then he just repeats the cycle, which is essentially the Egyptians' view of the sun and the moon, or not really the moon, but night and day, essentially. Darkness and light. The transition of night and day. But, you know, it also correlates with the scientific understanding of the death of a star and how the death of a star can create a black hole that consumes everything else around it but the death of a star can also be the rebirth of a star sort of like a phoenix wow i'm so poetic today uh but you know what i mean so the cycling of death and rebirth is also just a heavy factor in this folklore but also just really captures what we know about suns and black holes because again a sun is born it lives its life it breaks down dies and depending on how it dies it either makes a new sun or turns into a black hole also a few very uh, important details of the folklore after a certain point once Ra keeps going to war with Apep with Sekhmet and Bastet they grow tired over time, and it seems like Apep is taking their power away from them. And they're growing weaker and weaker, and they have to find another solution. And along the way, Ra resolves his issues with Set, the god of destruction, because he realizes he needs destruction in order to beat Apep. And so Set comes back into the fold, and then once he helps Ra, Ra starts to gain more dominance over that fight and this is sort of mirroring a little bit the difference between a supernova and a black hole just swallowing a collapsing sun because when a supernova happens it's a destructive explosion that brings about a rebirth of a sun so when Ra goes to war with Set, and Set is his new sort of companion in this fight. They, you know, have more ground, and they're making more progress, and Ra's getting stronger. There's that sort of correlation to that rebirth of the sun, and Apep, or a black hole, not really being able to do its thing. So, I just found that very interesting, the sort of connections between those two things. Also, the creation of Apep was said to be, in some variations, a sort of reaction to the birth of Ra, or the creation of Ra. It was sort of like a consequence of Ra's birth, and in some lore, Apep is Ra's umbilical cord? <laughs> Weird. 
Um, what if you just had an umbilical cord, they cut it, and it just, like, manifested into a new deity that was, like, dead set on killing you for the rest of your life? That's nutty. Also, to back this up a little bit more, this can be applied to uh, Ra's birth because he essentially is said to have collected himself or manifested himself from the void or noon. And we all know noon is essentially nothing, the abyss or, you know, space. Since it also sounds similar to how stars are formed from atoms fusing and clustering together within dead space. So when you think about space and how there's a bunch of gases everywhere from all these other star births or deaths, this debris at some point can start to, you know how molecules, once they meet, some of them start to circulate each other and they start to join. And then more join, it's a party, and then they invite more people, and then a sort of chemical reaction happens that creates energy and it builds into a star. It just sounds a little similar to Ra collecting himself from noon, the chaotic nothing. So, when you look at space, what do you see? Chaotic nothing. You see, like, a lot of stuff, yes, but a lot of it is other galaxies and other solar systems like us that are circling light, in a way. Outside of that, outside of these galaxies, outside of these nebulas, there's just dead space, and we don't know what's beyond that. There's just nothing. A void, a chaotic void, because there's stuff in there that's just traveling at high speeds, like comets or whatever, coming from even further away galaxies, and, you know, we don't we don't know. It's it's just chaos and nothing. So they weren't off the mark with associating noon with a chaotic abyss. It sounds very much like space. And if you're like, well, space isn't an ocean, and they describe this chaotic void as being oceanic in a way, it's like watery. There's a reason why, well, not a reason, but there's a sort of association why I personally think they made that association of water. Because when you think about the darkest depths of the ocean, it's kind of like space. The only difference is water, because it's a molecule that's heavier and, you know, space is void of anything. There's a lot of pressure at the bottom of the ocean. You can be crushed. Like, just a person trying to get down that far, you'll be crushed. In space, there's, you know, a lack of pressure. But the similarities being no light and chaotic nothing. <laughs> so you can say like in the ocean, there's definitely life down there, but it's completely void of light. And we still don't know a lot about the ocean and we don't know a lot about space. Granted, we're going to figure out the ocean before we figure out space, but you can start to see why they might have associated the skies with an ocean as well. Also, if you consider that during the day, the sky and the ocean, in one way or another, are both blue, whereas at night, they're both black. And if you look at the ocean at night, it usually reflects moonlight, and it has these sort of sparkles in it. Like, it's just reflecting moonlight, and you can see some light reflecting off it, but you cannot see into it. It's just black nothingness. And in the sky, you can't really see into it. It's too far away. You can't see beyond the specks of light that are stars in the sky, suns, other suns. They look very similar, is what I'm trying to get across. During the day, they look similar, and at night, they look similar.
Okay. That one hit a little different than the first one, I'll admit. All right, now we're going to talk about general Egyptian astronomy and how advanced it was for its time. The correlations to what we know now scientifically is just like how they know. They must have been real keen on paying attention to shit because I don't know. Well, I'll, you'll see. You'll see. So the cycle of gods of light fighting anti-gods or gods of darkness and chaos symbolized the coming of night and day. And I think I mentioned this before. The journey into the underworld for Ra symbolized death and rebirth which we now know for a fact that stars have a very cyclical function of death and rebirth. They light up, burn out, and die, and then occasionally are reborn. But from this cycle, you also have this consequence, which is a black hole that consumes and consumes and doesn't stop. They just eat. So it's that's literally what it is in Egyptian mythology, is Ra is born, there's Apep that just devours, and then Ra has to fight him for the rest of eternity, and it's a cycle. And that's the universe. That's literally, if you look around, that's kind of what's going on. I mean, from what we can tell thus far, at least. Also, did I point out that Apep is a snake? Which, again, now we know that a black hole, although might look massive to us from how we're looking at it, but it's a lot of matter being driven into a very, very, very small place. And when a snake eats, you know, um, you ever seen a snake eat? <laughs> you ever done that? Um, they unhinge their jaws and just start devouring massive things and digest them and, and are just a skinny snake again. That's what snakes do. Now, we also need to talk about Heka and Weret Hekau, who are both solar or sun deities that were also known for their associations to the underworld and the occult. So they're just space babies. Let's just go with space babies. Deities like these could help perpetuate the cycle of death and rebirth so Ra could reign over all the gods. So they would also take this journey into the underworld. Due to their ties with the occult, they were associated with snakes and were very effective in the fight against Apep. And each one of them, similar to Ra, wore this sun disc-esque crown that kind of has a little snake in the front sometimes, but it's just this big, sometimes it has like horns coming out the sides. It's just a disc that represents the sun that's like on top of their heads. I think... Sekhmet has one of those? I don't know. I don't know. Don't quote me. Don't quote me. But I think Sekhmet has one of those as well. Okay, so we need to talk about the star alignment when discussing the pyramids and other structures that they built because the Sphinx along with the Khafre and Khufu pyramids were placed in a way where the sun directly sets behind the Sphinx on the day of the summer solstice. Like, how do you do that? How do you do that in 2000 1000 bc how do you accomplish that that's amazing how do you do that i mean i wouldn't really commend them on how they built it because we all know how they built it but the just awareness of what's going on in space because it doesn't just stop there it doesn't 
So I sort of mentioned before how the sky was seen as another ocean above the earth, but what's interesting is that they also thought it was separated by this unseen force, which, you know, that's, that sounds like the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> that sounds like the multiple layers of, you know, between us and space, which, you know, is literally Geb and Newt myth, where Newt is the sky goddess that arches over and encases the Earth god Geb. And in these myths, you can tell that Egyptians saw the world, what they knew, as spherical. Which, they were the first ones to do it, guys. Like, they were the first ones to be like, it's a sphere. We're in a ball in the middle of this abyss, and we've got a sun. And it gives us life. Also, Geb and Newt's parents, Shu and Tefnut, uh, represent air and water and have an interesting relationship that kind of references the relationship between hydrogen and oxygen so or liquid hydrogen and oxygen and i found this science magazine article where it talks about nasa using liquid hydrogen and oxygen in this big orange external fuel tank that helps the space shuttle get into orbit and it sounds kind of like if you want to personify it uh, Shu and Tef Newt joining hands to visit their daughter Newt with a little help from Ra. Because, you know, chemical reactions and whatnot. And it's just, like, it's so applicable. Like, that's what's weird about it, is, like, how they know. How they, again, how did they know? You can be a, pun intended, stellar observer of the cosmos. But how do you know, just by living in Egypt your entire life, that you see the cosmos as noon surrounding this bubble in which the sphere of life is encapsulated. Like, how, how do you get that? Where do you get it from? Well, I mean, someone could say, like, well, they just, like, guessed right. And they noticed that the sun and the moon arch over the skies. Therefore, you know, creating a circular motion. They just, you know, got it right. But the fucking thing with Apep? I haven't really heard anyone trying to correlate black holes with this particular god or anti-god. Correct me if it's already been discussed by certain people, but, like, I just haven't seen it around. And once I start researching the folklore mythology of Ra, you start to see some trends. And you're like, what? dang like not just with you know again the sphinx thing with the star alignments and and the nile river rising at certain times and they notice these things but i don't know apep in particular just weirds me out because yes at the time they associated it with nighttime but it just really feels like a black hole story to me like it just really hits that note of swallowing everything including light like nothing gets past it we have that. And the, again, the cyclical part of it and what comes of it, it's just eerie. It's just a little eerie for me. You know? You know? <coughs> so yeah, that's the story between Ra and Apep. And I just, I don't know if you guys have seen 
the most recently released image of a black hole, but it is something else, let me tell you. Because the light is bending in a certain way where... Uh, someone explain this to me. It, it bends almost as if you're seeing all of the light and matter flatten before it spirals into the black hole. It's sort of like when you look at light through water. Like, if you look at something through water, the light bends. Therefore, everything you see bends in a weird way. And from what we can tell from black holes, they do something very similar. Where, say, you have two black holes that are merging into one another. Or sort of, like, coming near one another. Because they do move. And we can't see it in the shape in which it's probably playing out in, in actuality. If it has a shape. But what we're seeing is two spheres, essentially, that are already... The light's bending a little bit already on some of them. But when they sort of come together, the smaller one bends around the bigger one. Like, totally just warps and bends. And then they sort of start to circle each other a little bit. It's just a light show. It's, it's freaking wild. And, like Egyptian mythology, watching that happen is essentially watching the death and rebirth of something. Or not really rebirth, because it's already, you know, the light's already being absorbed. But somewhere in the universe, there's, you know, a death of a star and a rebirth of a star. And in that context, that is, you know, you could say, Apep going to town through noon and just devouring all the light that he sees and anything that has to do with Ra or the sun or light creation, you know? It's just wild how they got that. So good. And you know, that's why people think that the Egyptian gods were aliens or, I don't know, something with Egyptians having to do with aliens on some level at some point. Because you look at other you know, pantheons or clans of gods. And you just thought, okay, yeah, you think that, buddy. Yeah, your gods just live on top of a mountain in the sky. And uh, they just, they just, that's their realm is a mountain. What? What? Well, I mean, I do get that to some extent because, you know, rainwater and mountains and like the clouds, when they come in, they sort of just cut off the top of the mountain. You know, like really big mountains. I get it. I get that part. But the Egyptians were like, nah, we're in a sphere floating in nothing. And there's chaos around us. And, you know, looking at that black hole, that's some chaos. That's some chaos going on out there in the abyss. Not too far off. Not too far off. And... I have to I have to point out this one last thing where there's a particular quote from back in the day. I don't remember where it's from, but it's uh, that humans are made of stardust. And that's not entirely off base, believe it or not, because we are technically descendants of stars since chemists have figured out that we are made up of the same periodic elements that make up the stars. So we're made of the same stuff. So that kind of puts a lot into perspective when thinking about this. 
and thinking about, you know, religion <laughs> as well as science because it's the same conversation at the end of the day. It's where do we come from? How do we get here? And just so happens we're descendants of stars and the things that created us, which means we're, we're descendants of gods. So, yeah, same-ish, same freaking ish And, you know, a lot of people say, like, you know, but those aren't sentient beings. But we don't understand on that grandest scale sentience. We don't get it. Like, we don't know if there's this subconscious or conscious awareness to these elements that create and destroy. We don't know. We don't know. You can say, like, matter's inanimate. But, like, energy's energy. And when you're talking about science and when you're talking about spirituality and religion, you're talking about energy. So, yeah, that's my take on how Egyptian mythology parallels science. And with that, I'm going to tell you how I got all this information. Magic and Demonology in Ancient Egypt, a Harvard Museum lecture by Rita Lucarelli. Associate Professor of Egyptology for UC Berkeley. Religion and Ritual in Ancient Egypt by Emily Teeter. And Daily Life of the Egyptian Gods by Dimitri Meeks and Christine Favard Meeks. Of course, with a little help from Wiki. And again, you can find me on Instagram at Smoke and Shadow Podcast. And in the show notes, there are links to my Patreon if you donate. Thank you. Thank you so much. It very much helps. And if you would be so kind, please uh, hit the follow or download or like and share buttons, whatever, review. Thank you. Awesome. If you do that, that'd be lovely. Thank you. And with that, I'll see you on the next one.